begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. As the granddaughter of a well-known community member in Central Jersey, Sister Tammy al-Mansuri knew from a young age that Islam would play a central role in her life. After receiving two master's degrees in Islamic and African Studies from SOAS University of London, she taught in post-secondary institutions along the East Coast before joining Nur al-Aman School as the high school division head. She also helped start Hijab Fest six years ago to encourage young women wearing hijab. As the wife of Dr. Shadi al-Masri, the founder of Safina Society, she also devotes much of her time to serving the community of New Brunswick Islamic Center. It's no wonder that she acts as an incredible role model for young Muslim women in the area. In this episode, she talks about the importance of seeking knowledge as a woman, having the correct intention when it comes to hijab, and prioritizing theme within the family. So uh, I grew up in New Jersey, um, and uh, we came at a moment, um, some of the other young people and I, where our parents, um, most of them immigrants, were trying to reconnect with their faith. And so I remember very distinctly um, being a, a young child and being in a um, mostly cultural community. And then I think my parents coming to the realization that if they don't commit in a more serious way to uh, Islamic uh, learning, that they may lose their children. And so they established uh, a Sunday school. And we used to go um, on Sundays, obviously, uh, from the morning until probably about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And the classes were mixed, different uh, subjects, uh, but the intention behind the whole thing was to connect us to to the dean. And uh, I guess that's where the journey of it began. Can you talk about some of the early influences in your life, like your grandfather, maybe some other members of your family? Now that you mentioned grandfather, I had a very close relationship with my grandfather, Alayr Hamu. He passed away uh, about a year ago. Um, But mashallah, he was uh, the example of somebody who lived uh, the... Uh, Islamic uh, ethics that we talk about uh, or we read about in the books. He was uh, somebody who was um, modest and kind and what I remember most about him is how much he loved the recitation of the Quran and so I think that that left a very strong impression on me early on. Um, Another person of course is my father. Um, My father um, may Allah give him health and strength was somebody was the one I mentioned to you who was so eager to see um, myself and my brother really commit to Islam in a serious way. One of the things that he did is he introduced me to one of the most special teachers I've had in my life, and she was my Quran teacher growing up, 
Her name is Tintoraya, and uh, she took a particular interest in uh, myself and a few other girls that were around my age, uh, teaching us in the Sunday school that I mentioned to you, but also opening her home to us. And so we would go to her for tasmia, you know, to, re- to re- uh, recite what we had memorized. She would correct us uh, in our tatweed. She would encourage us in a really, really positive way to to learn. And uh, that's that stayed with me. Uh, and I think that that's something that... It, they, you often hear like it's often not just like the love of learning or the love of you know acquiring the dean, but it's also just that teacher that leaves that strong impression on you. And I think that would be the first one that was like that for me. I just remember that when Sheikh Mussin visited, he mentioned that he knew you from a very young age, and I was just wondering what it was like to grow up around people like that. Yes, Subhanallah, he is one of the uh, the, the very dear and special uh, scholars who left a very strong impact uh, on me and on my community when I was younger and uh, one of the things uh, may Allah preserve him and protect him that I was very moved by when I when I met him is his strong attachment to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and uh, in a way again we'd studied a lot in the books we'd learned you know seerah we'd studied fiqh um, but there has to be that moment when you have that like your heart wakes up that moment and uh, that I as, as a kid I hadn't had yet and everybody has it at a different time uh, that moment hadn't come yet when I got a little bit older and I interacted with people like Sheikh Mahsin and other scholars uh, like him who they, they actually model it, right? They model it in their character. I said, subhanAllah, then this is, what is that? That's something that, that's what I'm missing. There's something that, that ingredient, you know, that book knowledge doesn't bring you. At what point did you realize Islam was going to play an important role in your life? I would say probably pretty early on. Uh, it was, I guess you could say I was uh, in a like fight or flight mode uh, from my young age because um, I grew up in an area of New Jersey where there weren't many Muslims. So uh, work took my, my family there. Um, so there, were, there was really nobody. There was no community. I mean, I went to public school. Um, there was only one other Muslim family, but they, they didn't particularly want to um, identify as uh, Muslims. So it was a bit of like, okay, I, I have to make a decision. I remember thinking this even as early as sixth and seventh grade. Um, I have to make a decision. You know, is this going to be who I am or am I going to just kind of have this as sort of a ancillary or side part of my identity? Um, and I think at that moment, I just, I felt like I'm nothing without this. I remember thinking that very clearly. You know, I'm nothing. And um, at that point, uh, I decided, uh, I had come of age and I decided to wear hijab. And that was sort of like the beginning of it. Uh, and after that, I just felt this tremendous sense of responsibility. I remember feeling that all the time that um, I would say, well, you know, subhanAllah, for many people, I'm like the only Muslim they know. And uh, in my in my manners and my akhlaq and my adab, I have to reflect um, the beauty of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam's message or else I have failed, I've failed him. You know, that's kind of was the feeling. And though some people say, oh, well, you know, I do hear this talk sometimes, like I don't want that to just define me or I don't want to feel that pressure but it was like a good kind of pressure it wasn't like a bad one it wasn't just for dawah it was also self self-preservation you know i needed to protect myself from falling into certain things and this was the way to do it you know? just touching on something that you said you you said you started wearing hijab at a fairly young age and um i think uh, people struggle with hijab a lot um either whether to put it on or um you know once you put it on wanting to take it off um do you just have some advice um for for kind of dealing with that struggle uh, I, I think hijab is 
has to go back to being seen as an act of worship. It has to go back to being seen as ibadah, because what has what has increasingly happened is that um, young people are are feeling that it sort of represents a. Um, and I was concerned about this when I first saw it. Like it's almost like a it's a political message. It's a statement of you know individualism, uh, identity, uh, even going into identity politics. Um, and that I always felt that was a bit. I mean, it is powerful, but it is a bit, it can be superficial too, because if it doesn't speak to the heart, if it doesn't get to the core of why I do something, it will not last. And that is really what, uh, we were trying to do, even when we were working on, um, hijab fest um we were always wary of this always concerned that this turns into something that's like okay you know it's like hijabi fashion and you know it looks so nice and everyone looks great but but really what's the meaning of it and uh very very uh, soon we had to uh renew our intentions in the project and remind our even our attendees why we we're doing this you know that we're trying to connect back to um this very very personal uh deed this very personal act of devotion between a woman and uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, so we don't want that to get lost. But that's really the only way that hijab um, will continue to be uh, a staple part, right, of Islamic spiritual life in the West and, of course, worldwide, but, you know, just because it's our context, um, is that we have to go back to making it personal between uh, a woman and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sorry, no, it's a bit out of order, but uh, you mentioned hijab fest, and I was just kind of wondering, um, where did that idea come from? How did it start? It's an interesting story. It, it actually grew out of a conversation between um, myself and my husband. Um, one day a friend brought to my attention uh, something that was happening on social media and that it was um, there were certain individuals obviously they you know misguided who were making uh, Muslim women who don't wear hijab feel that they are inferior and she was upset and she was kind of bringing it to my attention and of course I was equally uh, concerned and upset and this is something no one should ever do um, because this is something that um, a person should commit to personally with their with their lord uh, but at the same time, I was thinking about it. And I was thinking out loud, I guess you could say, brainstorming uh, with my husband. And I said to him, you know, subhanAllah, there are, are a lot of people now who are speaking to this very important point that sisters who do not wear hijab need that support. But what about the sisters who do wear hijab? Um, what are the resources or the, let's say, what are the public, what is the public recognition that they can get? And some people might tell you, well, they don't need that because it's personal. But still, I felt like, you know, for a young girl who commits to wearing hijab and goes out in public and deals with the possible uh, harassment or just feeling different, what institution and what community is supporting her, making her feel like this is an amazing thing that she's done? And we kind of thought, oh, well, that would be something. Wouldn't that be something to do some type of a yearly event that recognizes that this is something that is uh, to be celebrated when our young women decide to make that commitment? So you also have two master's degrees in Islamic and African history. What made you want to study Islam from a historical perspective? So subhanAllah, as you mentioned, that that actually is sim it's connected to something we mentioned before in that um, I was in that mode of like, uh, okay, so Islam is important to me, but how important is it to me? And of course, I had decided, as I mentioned pretty early on, that it was very important to me. Um, but I was also very, like, dis distressed, I guess you could say, even, like, as a, again, middle schooler or high schooler, that all of our history books were all wrong. Like, I remember looking at it, and it was written with this very slanted language, um, almost like suggesting... Uh, a, you know, a connection, a direct connection between Islam and violence, a propensity to violence. And the images were always so scary. Like, I'll be looking at the textbook, and there's images of the Iranian revolution, and there's streets burning, and tires burning, and uh, terrorist acts, and so on. So 
it's interesting too that actually looked very foreign to me. I remember looking at this and thinking, "That's Islam. That's not the Islam that I know." You know, so uh, I said, "So you know, somebody has to kind of reconnect these folks, you know, to what we are actually about." And I guess the intention grew out of that. That when I got to college, it was even worse. I remember I had one class. Uh, it was an upper level, uh, you know, sort of like a 300, maybe 400 level. I can't remember history class on Islam and women, and I think possibly gender. But anyway, it was like uh, one. Of the, the professor tried to put me on the spot, and she said, "You know, could you tell us a little bit about Islam's practice of seclusion?" And I thought what? And I remember just that day, like, being like, huh? And the thing is, I honestly did not know what she was talking about, because it's something that I have never lived that experience. And she's like, you know, uh, women being sort of, you know, haremized and put in a harem and secluded and not interacting, not going into the public sphere, public space, and not having access to education. And, and I, I, of course, all of that to me, I just said, well, much of that is cultural. And obviously, the fact that I'm sitting there in a university, you know, taking this class is <laughs> indication that we do not, you know, uh, have that as a belief. So it made me a little bit, uh, you know, sort of defiant and a bit fr frustrated at the same time. And and the reason that frustration was actually not so much the professor's fault as it was mine in that I said, I don't have the knowledge to respond to her. You know, I, I don't actually know enough to be able to delve into some of these things in a, in a deep and meaningful way. Because one thing I discovered very early on in my life is that emotions don't mean arguments. You know, you just need facts, you need knowledge. And I loved history because it was the most like scientific of the social sciences where, you know, you just need to get historical evidence and you're, you're good. Um, and so... I decided to go into it for real and uh, went on to do grad school as well in, uh, in history. And can you just talk a little bit about your theses and what they entailed? Sure, yes. Um, so I was very interested in, uh, you know, sort of like 20th century uh, Islamic um, Islamic and social movements pretty early on. And it, it actually grew out of, again, a very personal uh, thing in that I, I used to like to listen to certain, like at the time it was cassette tapes, CDs and things of certain... Um, preachers, people who were involved in da'wah in, in the Muslim world. And I particularly liked to listen to the ones that were in Arabic because I felt like it strengthened my language, my abilities. So I used to listen to it a lot. But there was one in particular, one particular sheikh who was so passionate when he spoke and he was particularly so passionate about the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And he's just, you can't help when you listen to his khutab and when you listen to his uh, lessons and durus, you can't help but love the Prophet. You can't help it. His, his, his love is infectious. So... I heard about him and I was very intrigued by him when I heard that he was somebody who used to draw crowds of 250,000 people for his Jummah. Um, and I started to kind of look into him more in a serious way. So I did my master's uh, thesis on him. And then I went on after that to continue my second degree um, on looking at more um, a, a spiritual movement in Egypt, uh, a, an order that was actually uh, quite popular at one time, but very important because it was uh, active during the time of the British occupation, um, and it was called the Hasafeya. It was an order in Egypt. And just out of curiosity, you studied abroad. You studied in London. Um, were your parents okay with you studying abroad as a woman? Did you have to get married first? <laughs> So that was actually not even part of like my plan originally. So subhanAllah how things, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a plan, right? We plan and, and he has a plan. So I had originally, my, my goal was to do grad school at Columbia and it uh, wasn't going to be that far. So alhamdulillah. I, I, I think it's less about um, being a, a daughter or being a woman that my parents uh, were holding on to me so much as much as it was that I am the only daughter and I'm the oldest in my family. So for that reason, um, 
I, I'm kind of like the daughter and son in one. And so they depend on me a lot. And we have a very close relationship. And I, if I didn't leave, it wasn't so much about the fact that I'm a woman as much as it was about the fact that I didn't want to break their heart. And I think that that's really important that, you know, um, young people think about that as well when they make these kinds of decisions that it's, um, it's very important that our parents feel loved and protected and cared for, and uh, I didn't want to lose sight of that. That being said, um, I, uh, my husband now <clears throat> at the time had a plan to go and study in the UK, and so uh, when he came to uh, propose to me and my family, he made, you know, made this idea or suggestion known. Um, my parents didn't think it was a bad idea as long as it was temporary, you know. So <laughs> they were kind of like, "Sure, sure, you guys can go, but you know, as long as you know, you have to come back to us at some point." And and alhamdulillah, I think that that was you know with that intention, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helped us uh, because both my parents and his parents are here in the States. How did you meet Dr. Shadi? Subhanallah, that same school I mentioned to you. So the school that our parents founded that we used to go to on Sundays, he was actually attending there as well. Uh, but of course, subhanAllah, when you're young, you don't think, you know, that this is the person that you're going to marry. Um, but uh, later on, as I got older, I realized uh, the benefit of those deep connections, you know, that um, there is something to say there's a difference, right, between somebody who you know them, you know their roots, you know their parents, you, uh, as opposed to somebody who's a stranger. And I had to kind of make that uh, uh, sort of uh, discussion. I, that discussion was happening in my mind a lot, you know, as I got older. Like, uh, there is a certain amount of trust that comes with that. And that speaks to the benefit of having, you know, deep, meaningful communities um, that we, that's the whole point, right, is that we have to create that environment where people can feel they come to know someone in a meaningful way that eventually may become their spouse in the future. Do you have any advice for finding a spouse that has a similar vision to you? <clears throat> and nothing is more important um, than uh, when you are, let's put it this way, interviewing candidates to be your spouse. Um, and you should look at it that way, really, because it should be seen as uh, a partner, uh, of course, a um, partner in love and a partner in compassion, but also a partner in, in faith, a partner in the deen. Um, nothing is more important than, than the Dean aspect. The Dean aspect should be the paramount concern. And the reason I say that is because most of the issues we see uh, have to do with uh, difference of priorities. Um, both have to have the same goal of seeking knowledge and being in the company of scholars and ulama. Um, both have to have the same uh, marja, the same place to go back to when they differ because differences will happen. So if a wife, sister, or husband have taqwa of Allah, he needs to actually have taqwa of Allah. If a man says to his wife, remember the Prophet Muhammad what he said, she needs to feel that that is something she needs to take seriously. So it actually is a source of great like raha and uh, you could say like peace of mind um, for people when they enter a relationship on those terms because they're both going in with that understanding so really I, I can't emphasize it enough it is the most important thing and um, of course other things are also factors to be considered but definitely should be prioritized yeah. how do you continue to prioritize seeking knowledge as a family it's uh, it's a mindset it's a mindset you go in with or a state of mind uh, that you go in with that you never stop learning and you surround yourself with people also who care about that because even though we are um, we are our, our wives and we're husbands and they, but we also have friends and so your friends have to have the same mentality uh, or mindset or let's say the same uh, love and concern for for seeking knowledge that, that you do otherwise 
you'll find yourself like uh, you want to do something and everyone else wants to do something else. And that's very stressful. So uh, one of the things we try to do here at MBIC is to create that culture of learning where we have more weekly classes and um, that it's supportive to, to moms as well, that they can come and there's childcare um, because we, we don't want it to be that, you know, much all the brothers are like, you know, excelling in that and then the, the women, uh, they're not able to or vice versa, depending on their family situation. So it is uh, the case that a wife should be encouraged by her husband to seek knowledge. A, a woman should also encourage her husband to seek knowledge. And I think it's just one of those things that you just, early on in your marriage, just establish. Uh, a sheikh is coming in through town. Great, let's go. You know, uh, There's this event and this event and this event. There's so many things to go to. Great, let's make a schedule and let's go together. Um, notes, share notes you know, with each other. In the, in the home, establish a culture of uh, halakha, you know, like that, you know, you read something you want to share with him, you share it with him. He read something he wants to share with you, or he sat with the sheikh and he told him something, share it with your wife. It's it's just something that it's like a very beautiful and vibrant way of living uh, that has to be maintained. What's it like being married to a scholar? What are kind of the challenges and baraka that come with it? Uh, alhamdulillah. I mean, it's it's really, I can't imagine any other way of living, really, because I, I, th- I think about it once in a while. I say, subhanAllah, you know. Um, it would have been hard for me, you know, to to be married to somebody who has a sort of dunyawi profession. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I just feel like I really love that we're very immersed in in the deen at all times, and that that makes me uh, feel grounded uh, in the way that I want it to be. Um, of course, uh, challenges, you know, is mostly time, um, but we've been able to deal with that by carving out time in our schedule where we only devote that for family you know family time is like very very important to us so time together as uh, married people time with our children time with our extended family with our parents all of that is factored into the, the schedule and my husband has really cut back on travel for that reason you know that he's really trying and his intention in doing this is that he's trying to build the community here at the masjid but also his first community, like he always says, is, his, is the children, you know, our children. And they are the amana that's been entrusted to us. And so to go out and to give dawah and to leave them and not have them be the focus seems almost like it's uh, it's disastrous, you know. And when you see it, when you do see it, sometimes it's kind of, it's very sad. So we, we really went in with that intention. We knew it very early on. And I guess you could say we kind of learned also from the mistakes of others. And some people, like, they advised us that way. You know, those who were involved in Dawah, they said, you know, just don't lose sight of what's important, you know, even when you're going out and trying to help others. Can you just speak a little bit about accessing scholars and seeking knowledge as a woman? I think a lot of women don't feel like they have access to scholars, but you obviously did from a very young age. It's a very, very important issue. Um, and it's something that we, we really need to uh, ensure that we deal with it in a meaningful way. It makes me sad to hear, you know, that Muslim women feel that they don't don't have the access that they need to scholars. I guess in this sense, um, a person has to try to utilize any avenue that they can in order to gain that access. So, alhamdulillah, firstly, I should start by saying that um, <clears throat> it requires in some uh, ways a supportive a support structure support, a system of support so whether it be the local imam or scholars who encourage imma and shiuf to come through and to devote time in the community to women their women attend the female attendees um, or support within the family so uh, family members who also encourage that um uh, young uh, woman in their family to to have access to those scholars so both the community and the family have to support uh, women's access to uh, the scholars. This is, it can't be one and not the other uh, at all. 
<clears throat> the other part of this this is important is that um, it is the case that many of the shiuch and emma that we come to know of uh, in, this, in the uh, West uh, are men. But uh, I would say that there's an area, and I think some of the uh, female scholars in the West have started to talk about this, there's an area that's missing and that we do not know a lot about many of the female uh, ulama that uh, are in the world. Uh, we don't know their names or where they are or that they teach. So that also is another very important thing is that... Um, Sisters should know that they should connect in a very deep and meaningful and close way with these female scholars. You know, it should be something, this is in our tradition, all the way going back to the time of Sayyidah Aisha. So we should not, um, neglect that. I think that there's, there are certain names <clears throat> that are very well known and we tend to kind of congregate around those names, but uh, as far as the male scholars go, but we need to also not neglect that we have a, a, a rich tradition of female scholarship uh, in our, in our, uh, deen. And then kind of on the flip side, um, a lot of women, especially with, recent events in the last few years feel a distrust towards male scholars. Um, what should be the other of, of a woman when seeking knowledge and how do you deal with that distrust? SubhanAllah, yes. So it's, it has been a difficult thing to hear about certain uh, events like that. Um, I think probably the, the feeling that I would, or what I, what I most imagine is that uh, when I think of these situations, is that um, young women should separate very clearly in their minds the actions of human beings because we are flawed uh, with the deen you know it would be it would be uh, sad it would be very sad if the two things are you know conflated and then uh, people begin to suffer sort of uh, an iman uh, crisis because of that it has happened though and I have seen it that people they latch on so much to a certain individual and then they just like lose their faith when that individual falls or makes an error or something like that so we can avoid that from the beginning by not attaching ourselves to scholars in that way. This is very important. Um, but then, what do you what do you do? Do you look at it um, as a um, a kind of like? Um, do you look at it as a as a kind of well? I don't want to get attached because uh, everybody's uh, bad or everybody's this is this kind of negativity isn't good either but just to recognize that um, focus on the message the message of what this scholar brings uh, instead of the individual and that way a person's deen will be preserved at the same time protecting uh, oneself from possible sadness, right, and disappointment if that is to happen. People will make mistakes. There's no doubt about that. Um, but this deen is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, vowed that this deen will be protected. Uh, whether we want to be part of it or not, right, it will continue and it will endure until the day of judgment. So we have to ask ourselves that question, you know, are we going to attach our understanding of the deen and our faith to human beings? Or are we going to attach it to the eternal message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet so you worked full-time in an Islamic school, um, and you mentioned earlier that you went to public school where you were one of few Muslims. I had a pretty similar experience at private school. And what are kind of the pros and cons of being in an Islamic school? So, subhanAllah, I, I transitioned out of academia, uh, you know, teaching in colleges, and I, I, I'm working now in Islamic school administration. Um, I, I guess, subhanAllah, the, the one thing you could say is, I walk around a lot of times in the hallways and I can just keep saying Alhamdulillah, right? And that, um, and of course, many of these kids have never gone to public school, so they don't know what's out there. Um, but sometimes it's good to, to be reminded, you know, that um, there are things that they're protected from, uh, not fully, and there, there can never be any full protection uh, because we have things like the TV and phones and the internet, uh, which exposes uh, our youth to all of the fitan, right? All of the... Um, 
trials of our time, but they are more protected than how we were. And of course, that mean, even keeping in mind things have changed a lot. Challenges are are deeper, and they go they speak they go to the core of identity questions. Um, so for that reason, I do say Alhamdulillah uh, that they have that support. My intention going in every day is to create for them a an environment that is um, uh, defined by uh, mercy, gentleness, the message of our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I want them to have that environment while at the same time uh, paying attention to academic excellence in that um, that's really the, the, the golden combination. You know, if a person can try to cultivate that strong spirituality and at the same time have them accomplish everything they want in the, in the dunya sense, you know, uh, so they have a great uh, career and so on, then alhamdulillah, then we'll have, we'll have done something good. And, most importantly, that they feel like you're there for them. It's really, it's so, it's so much simpler than people think, you know, that you're there for them, that your door's always open, that they can talk to you, and there's no fear. That's uh, what I go in and think of. A lot of people that went to Islamic school uh, or even Sunday school end up presenting. How do you prevent that from happening? I'm very, very like keen of that of that problem about that problem, and I'm aware of it. Um, it's it has to do with the uh, way of the teacher, you know, and the teachers, um, as much as possible, have to be advised to always speak with gentleness, with love, with an eye of mercy, whether they're teaching Islam or they're teaching math or they're teaching English, whatever they're teaching. We have to remember that our students have to leave us with the best possible memory of their experience there because like it or not, that memory of how they felt in Islamic school will have an impact on how they feel about Islam. Okay. You can't separate the two things, no matter how much people try to tell you that, that you can. So that has to be uh, really like right front and center whenever we're talking about Islamic education. Last question. Uh, you're known as a role model to a lot of young women in the community. You got an education. You work full time. You're very dedicated to serving the community. Uh, you're also a mother. Um, how do you balance all that? <laughs> how, is it like? Is it possible to balance all that? <laughs> The, the 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 subhanallah. That's is, I never thought about it that way. But like uh, maybe it's it's. Um, I'll, I'll mention one thing about that. That uh, it's very important to wake up every morning and go about one's day with just one uh, word in mind, and that's service. Khidmah, right? Service. Um, a person should be always at the service of others. And subhanAllah, when that happens, when a person makes that intention, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides them with the opportunity to help. Those opportunities are gifts from Allah. That's how it should be seen. To, of course, acquire good deeds, but also to, to be there for the community and be there for people. All of that at the same time while remembering that... Um, we have a role. We have a. We have a, a very. All of us. We have a role, um, in that. This is the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and so every time we do things for others or we help others, in, whether it's our children or our spouses or our parents or our community and our friends, we are bringing him happiness and pride, and that is a strong motivator, you know, to 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 act and to do things. Um, all of this not saying that a person should neglect themselves, but I have to be honest, when you live a life of service and khidmah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He provides you with that care. He He provides you with people who care for you. You don't have to do it for yourself. It's almost like that saying when they say, if everybody cares about somebody else and everyone's taken care of, because somebody else will be caring for you. So that's, I think, the best way to, to look at things, just, just service being the, the number one thing.
Thank you for your wisdom. Of course. And, and of course. Thank you for being the first woman I interviewed. Oh, of course. And, and thank you for being the first woman I interviewed. Oh, of course. I'm very happy to be with you.